God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here today and we know that you are here and you know that you hear father I pray that you would open up an old familiar comfortable truth today just to incline our hearts to you God to fill us with uh, awe and wonder and worship for who you are God thank you for this place thank you for this time thank you for these people God we thank you for your presence with us and we pray that you would just continue uh, to manifest your presence among us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Clear Creek. In person and online, we're so good to have you here this morning. And I'm going to jump right in. I, I put it on the slides. I probably didn't need to. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We're in a year-long journey through the Bible called Core 52. 52 key passages to understand God's eternal story and our place in it. So go ahead and take that off, and let's say it again together. I'll point to fill in some blanks. For God so loved the that he gave his one and only, that whoever believes in him shall not, but have eternal life life. Last week, getting ready for Easter, the staff came over on, on Friday because we, wanted, we had to set up the chairs in a special way to get as many chairs as we could in, and what a great Sunday it was last week. And so I said, all right, staff, rather than farm that out, let's do it because I'm controlling and a little bit retentive about things like my chairs. And so we came over on Friday, and after we got done, I said, now, walk through the building and just Pay attention, look through a visitor's eyes and look for things that are out of place, things that don't belong. Because you know how it is, you get used to your own clutter to where you don't see it anymore. And so I know at my house and in my church, anytime there's a horizontal space, it tends to fill up. Anybody else have that problem? A little bit. And so just coat racks and things and we just noticed, oh yeah, we hadn't even noticed that. The clutter that's there. And so we went through and we cleaned it up and, and, it, and, you know, we have a staff that does a great job keeping the place clean, but you just stop noticing things. And so when you see it through somebody else's eyes, you, um, how many of you, if you have company coming over, how many of you go on a quick, oh my goodness, we got to get stuff cleaned up, right? Because we want everybody to think our lives are perfect and put together and there is no clutter, but there is. Or how many of you have ever watched a movie with your parents or your kids or somebody from church and you say, oh, this movie's so good. I love it. Let's watch it together. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, I forgot about that part. Oh, I, I, I didn't realize those words. Oh, my. You just get so used to it, to the clutter, 
that you don't even notice it anymore until you see it from a fresh perspective from somebody else's eyes. Well, it's possible for it to work the other way too. Sometimes it's, so, it's easy to get so used to what's good and beautiful and valuable in our lives that we stop noticing that as well. We stop paying attention. I have friends in Colorado and we go out to visit and, oh, I could never get tired of this scenery. And you're like, yeah, yeah I guess. You just kind of get used to it. It seems like every few years you'll read about, it seems like there are a lot of Van Gogh paintings found in people's attics. Um, and I, I was reading the history and there's a reason for that. But, but all these priceless works of art, uh, there was a, a signed Salvador Dali found at a Goodwill. So I looked up, what are some of these priceless treasures that have been found in unexpected places. And one woman found a Jackson Pollock painting at a thrift store. She, bought, she paid $5 for it. And then somebody said, you know, that might be a Jackson Pollock. It appraised for $50 million. There's a painting. Yeah. I checked my attic. There's nothing there. <laughs> nothing there. There was a painting by a, an artist named Caravaggio, who I don't know, um, but it was literally found in an attic. It's a biblical story. Um, $136 million. And then one man was shopping at a, at a yard sale, and there was a box of glass negatives of Yosemite, and he loved Yosemite. He traveled there a lot, and he said, I'm going to buy those just to have them and see what I can do. It turns out they were Ansel Adams glass negatives. He paid $45. They appraised at $200 million. Now, I found a complete box set of the Far Side comics <laughs> at a yard sale on that road and got it for $10. And I was like, yes, that's pretty good. But can you imagine having something so precious, so valuable right there in your own house and you don't realize its worth, and you just kind of let it get shoved off to the side. Well, I wonder if that's how John 3.16 is for us. I mean, we know it. We can all say it. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've seen it at football games, right? What is that, John? Everybody's familiar with John 3.16. It might be hanging up somewhere in our metaphorical living room, or it might be stored somewhere in our middle attic, but do we appreciate it for the treasure that it is? Now, we're going to do something a little unusual today. I've farmed out about a third of my message time to The Chosen. How many of you have watched The Chosen TV series? All right. I've been telling you people for two years, you've got to watch this show. It's so good. Natter finally started watching it. It's so good. Is it so good? He gives a thumbs up. It's so good. So The Chosen is a, uh, a presentation of the gospel, the story of Jesus, presented in a way that just makes sense. It's very relatable. And so in this clip we're going to watch today, it's the clip in which John 3.16 is contained, where Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a, a legalistic teacher of the law. But in, in this series, in this show, Nicodemus had encountered Mary Magdalene when she was still possessed by demons, and that's a biblical reality. And he encountered her, and in the show he tried to deliver her and couldn't, and he said, she's beyond help. Then Jesus met her and delivered her, and Nicodemus saw the transformation. And so he started to investigate, who is this Jesus? And he started to see more and more miracles and people who had been in, in contact with Jesus and had their lives changed. 
And so finally, and again, this is biblical, he arranges a meeting. Could I meet with you at night? Probably because as a Pharisee, he didn't want to be seen talking to this subversive rabbi. But I want us to just take a couple of minutes and see this familiar passage of John 3.16 from a fresh perspective through somebody else's eyes and maybe some of its true value will start to surface in us. So let's watch, and I do have to say, we got permission, I have to say this legally, we got permission from the publisher, the producers to stream this online, but for our online folks, we're not allowed to show it to you. So there's gonna be a QR code that comes up, you can scan that and watch the clip and then come back in about nine minutes. All right, so let's watch this, let's watch this clip together. Now, you may be wondering, did Nicodemus ever follow Jesus? It's not clear, but it does say in John 19, after Jesus was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea came and requested permission to take his body down from the cross. And it says he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen in accordance with Jewish burial customs. That sounds to me like somebody who loved Jesus. There's a way of reading the Bible that says it's facts, it's rules, it's guidelines, it's an owner's manual for life. And you can read it that way. That strips it of its power. It strips it of its beauty. For example, you can read Genesis 1, the account of creation, and you can read it like a science textbook, and then you have all these opportunities to argue about the meaning of the word day and the logic of the sequence of events and how this happened and why that happened. You can do that. Or you can look at it as a breathtaking picture of a God who is infinitely creative and powerful and wise, yet who stoops to form man with his hands and breathe his own breath into man's lungs and walk with him in the garden because he takes pride in us and he loves us and he wants to be with us. Now tell me, which would you rather have hanging in your living room? A textbook or a panoramic portrait of a beautiful, majestic, powerful God? The Bible is full of pictures. So many times when you read things and say, I don't understand why that happened that way. Look at the picture of what God is saying, telling us about himself and what he's telling us about us and our relationship with him. Because there are ways of interpreting that help us make sense of what has happened, but sometimes we need less interpretation and more appreciation of, man, what a beautiful work of art God has given us. In John chapter 3, as we just watched, Jesus made reference to one of those pictures from Hebrew scriptures that's a little bit confusing. And I'm going to look at that a little more closely this morning. In, in John 3, 14 and 15, right before, if you know your math, 14 and 15 come right before John 3, 16. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Well, what's he talking about? This is one of those pictures of God. It's found in Numbers 21. So after the Israelites left Egypt, left slavery there, they traveled to Mount Sinai, they received the law, went to the borders of the promised land, and because they were afraid and rebelled against God, were not allowed to enter and were sentenced. Okay, you're going to wander for 40 years. You're all going to die, and your children will enter the promise that I've given. Well, along the way, they got really good at complaining. 
They said things like, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. I think that might be selective memory. They were beaten as slaves, but they remember the pots of meat. Another time it says the Israelites started wailing and said, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Really? Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. T.D. Jakes has a sermon about this when he says that the catch line of the sermon is, you got to get that taste out of your mouth. <laughs> they just keep remembering onions and leeks and watermelon. He said, you got to get that taste out of your mouth. He said, some of you, God is trying to lead you someplace new, but you keep looking back to a relationship, to a situation, to a time in your life, to a sin that you enjoyed and saying, wow, wasn't that great? Get that taste out of your mouth so you can move forward. Well, in Numbers 21, they're at it again. It says traveling through the desert on their way to no place in particular. The people grew impatient and spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. This is the seventh time recorded in the book of Numbers that they've complained. They've grumbled. They've spoken against the Lord. I mean, in the past, God, we're thirsty. So God gave them water. God, we're hungry. So God gave them manna. We're tired of the manna. So God gave them quail. Again and again and again, God provides and they keep on rebelling and saying, you know, it's not enough. It's never enough. So this time, the seventh time, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Well, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned. We're sorry. Please pray for us. Ask God to make it stop. So Moses prayed for the people. And in verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it. And live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by the snake, by a snake, and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It's such a strange story. Doesn't it? It raises so many questions about why God did things this way. Well, I think how you interpret it depends on the eyes you see it with. Is this a story of a vengeful God who was just fed up, he'd had enough? I suspect that's how Nicodemus and his fellow Pharisees would have read it. That's a story you can use to manipulate, to control other people's behavior. You do what we say or God's going to get you. Maybe some of you were raised in a church that taught that way. But that's not the story that Jesus sees. Because he goes straight from that story to God so loved the world. So to Jesus, it's not a story about judgment. It's not a story about punishment. It's not a story about vengeance. It's a story about grace. It's a story about provision for salvation. It's a story about love. And ultimately, we know it's a story about Jesus. It's part of the bigger picture of what God was doing, not just in that moment, but in the masterpiece he's painting across all of history. And it is an invitation to receive his salvation. Now, the way I see that unfolding is snakes come in the camp. People are getting bit. People are dying. They ask for help. The snake goes up, and they hear there's hope. They come to the center of the camp. They see the snake. They feel the poison leave their body. Thank you, God. They turn to go back to their tents. They get bit again. Oh, no, here it comes. They come back. And I think more and more, 
As people turned away, they realized, I, uh, we can't turn away. There's death everywhere but here. And before long, the whole community is gathered together, looking up toward what? Looking for what? Well, they're looking for salvation. They're looking for deliverance. They're looking for healing. They don't want to die. And what they're looking at is a picture it's a reminder of the consequences of their sin. By focusing on the consequences of sin, they find salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wrote, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's Satan. The spirit who now is at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the, the, the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. That is who we are at our core, destined for destruction. We're snake bit. Not because God is vengeful and fed up, but because it's our nature to rebel and that's a problem because God's nature his holiness his justice his righteousness demands that sin be punished it can't be ignored it can't be excused it can't be there there away but Paul says because of his great love for us God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. That's John 3.16 all over again. For God so loved the world, and we love that part, yes, the grace, the mercy, the promise of eternal life. But you can't disregard the next part, that he gave his one and only son, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for our sins, but for the whole world. And there are versions of faith that want to focus just on the grace and forget about the judgment part. There are churches that want to focus just on the judgment and minimize the grace. But you've got to have both to have a complete picture of who God is. So he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever looks to him for salvation, whoever fixes their eyes on his savaged body and his tattered flesh, a brutal reminder of the severity of our sin and of the necessity for a savior. He's both horrible and beautiful and wonderful to behold all at once. And when you look, he says, you won't perish as your sins merit. You'll have eternal life. Max Licato told a story about a girl named Christina who lived in a small village in Brazil. And Christina was bored in her little town. She felt like her strict parents had cheated her out of the life she deserved. She longed for the excitement of a big city like Rio. So one morning, her mom went into her room and found her bed empty and knew immediately where her daughter had gone. Well, knowing the trouble a girl could get into in Rio, her father quickly threw some clothes in a bag and headed to the bus station. But on the way, he stopped at a drugstore and went into a photo booth and had several 
you know, one of those that takes like four or six pictures, had several strips of pictures of himself taken. He spent a week in Rio searching all the spots a girl like Christina could get in all kinds of trouble, hoping against hope to bring her home, but she was nowhere to be found. And finally, heartbroken, devastated, Christina's father got back on the bus and headed home. Months later, Christina found herself walking down the stairs of another hotel where she'd spent another night. Life in Rio wasn't what she had imagined at all. Her eyes were tired, filled with pain and fear. She longed to go back home to her mom and dad in the safety of home, but she knew it was too late. They would never want her back. Well, as she came down the stairs, watching her own reflection in the mirror across the lobby, she noticed something on the corner and she looked again. There was a small picture of her father taken at the photo booth months before. And with trembling hands, she pulled it off and turned it over on the back were written these words. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. John 3.16 isn't a nice little verse to stick in the attic. It's a picture of a father that the father has left us to find to help us find our way home. It's a complete picture of the gospel of salvation, God's love, our sin, the gift of his son. We have another picture that reminds us of those same truths, God's love, our sin, the gift of his son. And that's our observance of the Lord's Supper, the elements of bread and juice we take together every week. And just like John 3.16, I think there's a danger that due to familiarity, they become undervalued. So today, as we prepare for our time of communion, I want us to, to look at the snake. I want us to contemplate the price, the cost, the consequences of our sin that made it necessary for Jesus to come, not to induce guilt or shame, but to induce wonder and awe. How great the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. So as we prepare for communion, I just want to read from a little book, a book of prayers. And this prayer is called Knowing the Power of the Cross. And so if you would, just bow your head and close your eyes and have your communion elements ready. And let's pray this together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the cross of Christ. I cannot possibly fully understand the full meaning of the death of Christ for the sins of the world, but this I know, that all my sin was laid on him, that the punishment for my sin was taken by him, that the guilt of my sin was put on him, and that I've been redeemed, pardoned, acquitted, forgiven. That I, who was once your enemy, have been brought near, have been brought home to God to be your child, to be your friend, 
I know that Satan was defeated on the cross, that he was robbed of his power, and that sin no longer controls me because I'm now ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I confess again my sins. I turn away from them, believing that Christ died for me. Make and keep me pure within. As I ponder the power of the cross again, may I be lost afresh in wonder, love, and praise. May I know again that I have been crucified with Christ, that the life I now lead is the outflow of his life in and through me to be used by you in this needy world. May I follow your example and deny myself taking up your cross daily as I follow you. May I show that I know something of the power of the cross in how I live for you, boldly and passionately bringing the message of the cross to others. May I live even today absolutely certain that I am your child. May I continue to learn to follow Christ today, remembering that his death and glorious resurrection are the doorway to new life opening up the way to move beyond the ordinary, to live a new life for you today, for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Take the bread. Take the juice. Spend some time marveling at the beauty of our Savior.